we continued to dig into the side of the hill. And that's when we uncovered something a little bit higher up than where the ribs were. And as we started to expose it more, it started to take on a very um, complex shape to my eye. And comparing it to the T-Rex skull tattoo on my left arm, it looked like the back of a skull of a T-Rex that had landed upside down. In this particular instance, our fossil preservation department apparently was uh, having a great day back then, uh, 66 million years ago, because this thing is, is really amazing. Prim told me the story that one tooth was starting to break, and it broke, and it was a lucky fall because it fell right into her hands. At the end of the day, the past has no other voice but the bones. And there's simply no other way of recovering the past without having the actual bodies in hand. Without that, we have nothing. Chrissy, do you remember the first time you watched Jurassic Park and saw those dinosaurs moving around? I do. I was actually, quite frankly, scared. <laughs> yeah, I know. And so my mind was blown <laughs> away at the possibility of being in contact with these animals, these huge things. They're like sort of familiar, but they definitely have all these features that we are totally unused to. They're so big. And I remember wondering, like, how in the world did these people in Hollywood know the size and the shape and the behavior of all these animals? How'd they know how they, what they were going to do in these situations? Before watching Jurassic Park, I never really had questions about dinosaurs. So the film itself, I feel, made it normal to be fascinated by the T-Rex and to maybe um, pursue more knowledge about it all. So I'm glad you're here. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know. Me too. And I mean, you're not alone, right? People have been searching for dinosaur fossils for like 200 years now. You know, the first dinosaurs where we recognize them as dinosaurs, that's almost 200 years ago now. And since then, the search has expanded throughout the world. But what have these discoveries told us about these specimens when they were alive? I mean, did Jurassic Park get it right? Today, we will talk with several people about the recent discovery of a Tyrannosaurus rex skull, one of around 15 skulls known to exist in the world. It's called the Tufts Love T-Rex, and it's not something you find and pull out of your backyard. At least, not in my backyard. To find a T-Rex like this is incredibly rare, but sometimes these discoveries happen right under our noses. Well, at least that's what happened here. This show was produced by the Discoveries in Geosciences Field School, bringing real science to real people and into the classroom. The Dig Field School is a nonprofit education program for K 12 teachers and students created by University of Washington paleontologists at the Burke Museum in Seattle. Dr. Dave DeMar is from the National Museum of Natural History at the Smithsonian Institution. Dave, like many of us paleontologists, got introduced to it through dinosaurs. Uh, when I was 11 years old in 1995, uh, there was a TV documentary called Dinosaur that was hosted by Christopher Reeve. Um, Superman. Yep, Superman. I was fascinated by that 30-minute film. Um, Phil Tippett, the guy who did a lot of the stop-go animation for Jurassic Park some years later, uh, yeah. was involved with that. I was just blown away by the imagery and, and dinosaurs in general. So when you were 11, did you kind of have in mind that you wanted to be this... Maybe you didn't know it was an academic thing, but to be a paleontologist or you thought dinosaurs were awesome? I think both. Okay. Yeah, because, you know, some of the even famous dinosaur paleontologists today, like, you know, Jack Horner, Phil Curry were on there. Yeah. Now they're sort of colleagues to me. And yeah, so that's right. It's, it's a real treat to kind of come full circle there. It wasn't until, you know, some years later when Jurassic Park actually came out that, that I really, truly wanted to uh, become a paleontologist. That's an interesting thing, right? That 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 movie certainly affected a lot of people. I think it was probably my hypothesis, of course, is that it's just the raw vitality of seeing animals like that that you maybe are familiar with, but then seeing them moving and running and all that kind of stuff. It's just affected so many millions. Exactly. I went to see it in theaters, you know, upwards of thirteen times. I was so into that movie. So, <laughs> yeah, man, me too. So, it highly motivated me, and less than a year later, I was joining the U.S. Army to uh, get money for college to be a paleontologist. Well, before we get into more details about the fossil found in the Hell Creek Formation, let's talk about how and why they're there in the first place. 
About 66 million years ago, an asteroid crashed into the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. This crash triggered the event that drove most of the dinosaurs and around 65% of all animal species on Earth into extinction. To give you an idea of the magnitude of such a crash, the asteroid hit Earth with the same energy as 100 million atomic bombs. Leading up to the asteroid impact, sediments were deposited all over the world, producing fossil records of all the living things. One of those places is now called the Hell Creek Formation, which is found over portions of Montana, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wyoming. And it's made up of these deposits, mostly from the very end of the Cretaceous period. The Hell Creek Formation has been a treasure trove for fossil findings of all kinds of Cretaceous plants and animals. We're talking about trees, flowers, conifers, ferns, lizards, snakes, salamanders, turtles, fishes, sharks, rays, snails, clams, crocodiles, mammals, pterosaurs, and of course, everyone's favorite, the dinosaurs, such as Tyrannosaurus rex and Triceratops. Greg Wilson is a curator at the Burke Museum and director of the Dig Field School and professor in the biology department at the University of Washington. He has been going to the Hell Creek Formation since 1998. You know, really what we're trying to do is understand these last, very last dinosaur-dominated ecosystems and the transition from those ecosystems to this complete changeover where mammals become the dominant members of the terrestrial ecosystem. So we're trying to really track those changes. And in Montana, we have a section of of rock, so um, badlands that are some 200 meters thick. And those badlands and those uh, rock layers capture the last 2 million years of of the dinosaur era and the first million, million and a half years um, after that, after Mm. that mass extinction. Mm -hmm. So we look, we try to look at different time points through that window. And for each time point, we try to collect enough fossils and primarily vertebrates, but now we're collecting plants and other things now to, to get a full understanding of that ecosystem. And then after that, how does, uh, an area or an ecosystem recover from something so devastating as an asteroid impact and climate change and so on? Is there a reason you're going to Montana to do this work? In the world, there aren't that many places where you can do a study to look at this time interval in this depth with this sort of rigor. And you also can't go to many places where you can actually put your finger, like literally your finger, on that layer that preserves the fallout from the asteroid impact that fell out all over the globe. The fossil record is famous for a few things. And I think one of them that everybody understands really well is mass extinction. Yeah. You study mass extinction by studying the fossil record. It's really the only source of data, probably, right. we could ever get on it. Yeah. And here's the best place to study that the extinction. most famous one. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so can you tell us about the people in Montana that you're working with? You know, I've, I've already spoken about um, the fact that we have teachers out there. We There are grad students and Burke Museum volunteers and researchers from other uh, universities and museums, but super important that we work with the locals yeah. out there and we work with the the federal and state agencies like the Bureau of Land Management and Montana State Department of uh, Natural Resources. The local community, you know, they've seen a lot of us come and go. Sure. And so they have a lot of knowledge about, you know, of course their land, but also uh, you know, how to help us. And it adds a lot of flavor to life out there as well. So I really cherish those relationships. It was May of 2015 in the Hell Creek Formation when two Burke Museum paleontology volunteers made their discovery of the T-Rex site. Here's Dave again to tell us about the moment. Uh, you were in charge, if I remember correctly, of the actual excavation that summer. Is that right? Yeah. Uh, so I was physically on the ground the entire time the Tufts Love T-Rex was being collected. In 2015, when Jason Love and Luke Tufts uh, found the spot, they found it on the last day when they were prospecting oh my for gosh. the year. And um, I think they said it was the last day and the last 15 minutes they were out there. So they went to the spot. They saw these huge big boulders with some highly weathered and beaten up bone 
exposed and some of it had weathered out and fallen on the ground and they picked up a, a piece of a bone that was uh, highly spongy-like, almost like honeycomb-shaped. Honeycomb-type uh, bone is typical for large theropod dinosaurs. And honeycomb, you mean uh, the inside of the bone. It was broken open. Exactly, yes. So, the, uh, Which later, once we got to the site, we determined that what they had found was the inside of the hip bones, the hip vertebrae. But when they came back that year, they showed us some pictures. And then later again in 2016, which is when we revisited the site, they showed us that piece of honeycomb bone. And so they were like, hmm, maybe this is a T-Rex. There was a little mound of sandstone that had some heavily splintered ribs and what I thought were gastralia. Now, gastralia are belly ribs, and you often see them in some lizards and the tuatara, modern tuatara and crocodilians. Right. But for dinosaurs in the Hell Creek Formation, the only animals that have gastralia or these belly ribs are the theropod dinosaurs. So the theropods are the big meat-eating dinosaurs or small meat-eating dinosaurs, I guess. Yeah, everything from like, you know, Velociraptor up to T-Rex. As folks were um, excavating to the side of the hill, I decided to look around a little bit. And off to the right-hand side of the locality, I found the top of a backbone, um, the neural spine, which is a little spine that sticks off the top of the backbone. And in tyrannosaurs, uh, like T-Rex, the neural spine, the, the one that I collected, was very broad. And it had these very rugose or very bumpy projection sticking off the front and back of this narrow spine, which uh, is typical of T-Rex. So Brandon, how much of a skeleton would you say is typically found when something like this happens? Oh, I'd say that most of the dinosaur elements that people find are either isolated pieces, you know, a bone or two, or maybe a few bones together that are part of a skeleton, but it's very rare that you get anything all together and especially rare to get a full skeleton. So when thinking back to a museum visit, it's not typical to find a whole skeleton like we see? Oh, definitely not. According to Dave, for the hundred years or so that people have been out looking for Tyrannosaurus rex skeletons, there are few that are over like 30% complete. So Dave and his team now have three clues pointing them to what could be a T-Rex. We continue to dig into the side of the hill, and that's when we uncovered something a little bit higher up than where the ribs were. And as we started to expose it more, it started to take on a very complex shape. And by the end of the day, we had exposed enough that to my eye and comparing it to the T-Rex skull tattoo on my left arm, it looked like the back of a skull of a T-Rex that had landed upside down. Essentially the whole process of collecting the skull, you know, occasionally I look at my arm and say, yep, yeah, that's what this is. But really wasn't until we uncovered the back of that skull that we had that aha moment like, oh, my gosh, you know, this this could turn out to be something amazing. All my life, I've wanted to find a T-Rex and to finally visualize it right in front of me as we slowly picked away at that sediment and the shape of that skull started to match up perfectly with the back of the skull of a T-Rex was truly a magical moment. It still gives me goosebumps today just thinking about it. Now that Dave and his team realize they found a T-Rex skull, it's not like they can just start chiseling away and throw it in the back of a truck. No, especially not with such a large and fragile structure like a skull. You know, it's exciting that you get a T-Rex and you want to you want to see what it looks like, but you also have to be aware that this thing has to go back to the lab where um, it should be prepped uh, under better conditions, you know, out of the sun, out of the wind, out of the rain. Just to digress for a second, um, Jack Horner had showed up on that fifth day. We were out there, the five days later when we were out there, and he was sort of like the final say that we did have a T-Rex. And we both sat down next to the skull, and he's like, well, Dave, you've got yourself a T-Rex. That has to be one of the most inspiring moments as, uh, as a paleontologist. Wow. Knowing that the guy who's collected the most T-Rexes ever said, you know, had told me that. That's spectacular. It, it, was, it was really exciting. It's like you're getting a blessing. This thing you thought was right, this thing you felt was right, and here comes this patron saint <laughs> to give you a thumbs up. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's times like that that really got me excited about being a paleontologist and what I hope to find in the future. 
We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will learn what it takes to uncover a 66.3 million year old fossil from a 3,000 pound rock. This is Brandon. And before the break, we heard from Dave DeMar and Greg Wilson. And they described the eureka moment when they discovered they had a nearly complete skull of a Tyrannosaurus rex. Greg Wilson orchestrated the excavation while Dave DeMar led the team of more than 45 people for one month in the scorching heat to get it properly out of the ground and then transport it safely to the Burke Museum in Seattle. And that's where Michael Holland comes in. Yeah, my name is Michael Holland. I am a exhibit fabricator and fossil preparator. So currently, uh, I'm attached to the Burke Museum, where I'm the preparator for the Hell Creek Project. Brandon had kind of given us the idea that it takes a lot of teamwork going into bringing a specimen um, from its original location to something accessible for the public, a museum. So who do, um, how do you decide who gets to be involved in a special project like that? Generally speaking, when a, a fossil comes in from the field, it's not really in any condition to be exhibited yet. It needs to be stabilized and cleaned and basically just made safe for handling or mounting. Or, or even if it's not going on exhibit and it's just going to live in a collections cabinet, you still have to get it to the point of utility. Once it finds its way to the museum, in this instance, it was handed off to me and they said, okay, uh, let's open this thing up and, and start going on it. When I looked at it, my first thought was, I'm not really going to know which side is up because all sides are going to need to be up at some point. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, if you really want to have access to the thing, you know, you can expose as much as you can from the top, but then eventually you're going to, you're going to turn it over. It. Yeah. Right. Um, you're and, lifting it up off the ground. Like it's suspended. Yeah, like suspended. This very, the... very delicate, very, very heavy object. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and most of the time it's not just lifting it, it's lifting it and turning it. Right. And then setting it down. Right. And trying not to crush any humans while you're at it. Right. <laughs> so it's it's kind of a, it's a scary experience. Uh, what have I heard about some sort of rotisserie situation <laughs> yes. in the Burke's prep lab? I knew what I wanted to be able to do with the specimen, but I wasn't. 100% sure how to get there, but I had some ideas. And so I sat down and kind of put together a little napkin sketch of this device that would hold a big object like that, mm -hmm. but enable you to just kind of roll it on a single axis. This is peak creativity, by the way, if it's being drawn on a napkin. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This yeah, is it. Is, <laughs> this is the real deal. The best stuff happens on napkins. That's Every, right. Everybody knows that. That is right. And if they're stained, it's even better. That's right. Uh, and oh, there are stains. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I'm kind of a mess sometimes. <laughs> Once the Rex is in the rotisserie and you've taken the plaster jacket off and you're looking at the sort of specimen itself, what tools are you guys using or what methods are you using to sort of get the skull out of the rock? We've got kind of a, a whole arsenal of tools at our disposal for sure. that. And and some of them are really low tech and simple. Sure. You know, we use awls and chisels and toothbrushes or, you know, so sometimes it, it's variable in the matrix. The rock matrix can be either really soft, like just kind of somewhat loosely consolidated sand. Like if you think of like, you know, that bag of dried out brown sugar that you forgot right. about in the back of your right. kitchen cabinet, you know, like, yeah. If you really kind of scratch at it a little, it comes apart. It's well, still remember, sort of solid. I remember I mean, personally being at the Tufts Love Rex site and I was using my fingernail right. to get sandstone out. Yeah, that is, that is like fossil preparator's dream right there because it's stable enough to have preserved a fossil beautifully, but it's soft yeah. enough to be easy to remove. Sure. And we were lucky because a lot of this skull was contained within that kind of rock. Beautiful. But soft. there was other rock within it also that was a little more like the concrete in your driveway. Um, Less ideal. Really hard. Yeah. And so when you get into that kind of material, you kind of want something a little more robust. And sometimes if you're far enough away from the fossil and you have absolute confidence that it's safe to go after it, <laughs> that can mean things like chisels and hammers. To get a better understanding of these tools, we went into the lab with Michael. 
Well, we have the skull right now at somewhat of a strange angle. It's laying yeah, sideways. Kind of sideways. Yeah. Um, and we can do that largely because of the way in which we have it supported. We're looking at a wall of teeth. Uh, yes. <laughs> Coming right at us. <laughs> yes. Yes, we are. When working on the fossil, they use pneumatic air chisels called air scribes. And there's a series of these that vary in size and power output. Those variations are very important depending on the rock that the fossil itself is encased in. Uh, you can see some areas, like by these teeth, this is supremely soft matrix. Yeah, Much of the skull like was like contained beach in sand. this. It, it, well, it essentially is. It like, was. <laughs> yeah, or at least a, a nice riverbank. Anyway. Yeah, right, right. Um, so sometimes we'll just get out things like, like these little dental tools. Just scratch a little sand away here, and you can watch how easily this stuff comes away. Oh yeah, right I mean, on. You, you could you could really do this with your fingernail, just about. It's it's so soft. It's kind of like uh, dried sugar. So most of what we got has has that kind of matrix, which is great. But there have been some areas where it's quite a bit different. It's all sandstone, but. The harder stuff is really hard. Like, okay. Like, so that's a pain, think, then. Think of, like, a sidewalk hard. Like, oh, wow. Like, like, like concrete. Cement. Yeah. Yeah. You can see that when I apply some pressure at the tip of this chisel, it's just oscillating back and forth like a little jackhammer, cutting its way through the rock. So that's the largest of our tools. Uh, so we'll switch that one out, and we'll go to somebody a little bit smaller. This air scribe is referred to as a micro jack, and it's going to do the same thing again, where you'll have that same reciprocating jackhammer kind of movement. But now the stylus that we're using is much, much smaller. This is probably only about two millimeters wide, so it's just a small tapered steel rod. It's got a pretty good sharp point at the tip. Much quieter. The material that's being released is much smaller. Now I'm just moving little chips of rock. Michael then went on to show us the smaller and smaller air scribes so that when you're working on the fossil, you can get right down to the surface of the bone and get that last little layer of rock off without damaging the fossil. But this whole process of preparing the fossil isn't just about scraping off rock. That's right. There are also chemicals being used during the preparation process to keep the bone protected from the atmosphere. After all, it's being exposed for the first time in over 66 million years. Really, it'll look very much like what you're seeing right now, just a lot less dusty. <laughs> I mean, I'm not a Tyrannosaur expert, but I've seen a pretty good amount of the skulls that are around at different museums in the world, and I didn't expect something this gorgeous. Her horns on her, above her eyes yeah. and, and sort of her yeah. forehead and all the rough texture there. So you could imagine the scaly or even keratinous armored yeah. forehead and top of the nose that this animal would have had in life. I mean, you can see it. The smooth bone where there's muscle, the really rough, nasty bone where she would have had a horn. Yeah. Oh, it's, man. It's kind of dramatic. It is insane. Yeah. Any kind of nostril or yeah. eyeball, like you can easily imagine some movement. It right. blinks at you it, right. or, you know, sniffs and something like that. But just seeing that rough texture, I'll say this too, the ball of um, oh, yeah, on the, the back of the skull where the condyle. The occipital yeah. condyle. That's a, that's a wonderful Where the backbone texture. connects because it's just such a perfect, like, grapefruit size yeah joint and you can imagine that skull can turn all different directions which of course it did and it's just so cool to see a sphere like that so perfect on such a complicated object in in this particular instance our our fossil preservation department apparently was uh, having a great day back then uh, 66 million years ago because this thing is is really amazing so when most people think of a skull they think of their own skull which they think of as one big bone but your skull is actually made up of a bunch of different bones, and they're usually symmetrical with one on each side. Mammals like you actually have a simple skull in terms of the number of bones that are there and how they're all fused together. Reptiles, on the other hand, have many more skull bones than mammals. In talking with Michael, I learned they had found 100% of the Tufts Love Rex's skull and jaw bones. That is incredible. 
You have to imagine that when a Tyrannosaur like the tough Slovrex died, it might have died in a river and its body disintegrated and fell apart and it was buried and moved around and was underground for a long time. That is really difficult to get. Now, Michael isn't the only person putting in the hours cleaning and preparing the skull. He told us earlier that they've logged over 7,200 hours working on it. One of the people who's put in several hundreds of those hours is Gene Primovich. Hello. How are you doing, Gene? Hi. <laughs> yeah, you should call me Prim. That's what most people call me. It's easier. So what's your connection to the Tufts Love Rex? Well, I am a volunteer preparator at the Burke Museum in Seattle. And I am presently um, working on the Tufts Love T-Rex skull and have been for nearly two years um, preparing the skull. That's what I've been doing for the last couple of years. Hanging out with a T-Rex. Hanging out intimately. with a T-Rex. Very intimately. Yes. <laughs> All up inside this guy. Yeah. <laughs> or gal. Or gal. Hard to I say. I think it's a gal. It is hard to say. Yeah. yeah. Except that I've always referred to her as Elvira. Oh, wow. Yeah. From the get-go. I was out in the field um, okay. when we were getting her out of the rock. And and I <laughs> said to Dave DeMar, who was yes. the leader of the group, I said to him, She's a girl. <laughs> and I named her Elvira at that moment. So for two years, I've been referring to her as Elvira. You've worked with a lot of fossils then before the yeah. Rex. Yeah, I Because did. you've had this experience in the field. You've been at the Burke for years. Yeah. How does everything before this compare? <laughs> does it? Well, it doesn't. Really. All these turtles and horses can no, go home. <laughs> no, I'll tell you, the crocodile skull was, I did a crocodile skull, and yes. that was pretty awesome. Sure. Just the detail of the crocodile skull was pretty awesome. But this, I mean, obviously takes the cake. I mean, I started with the a few of the rib pieces and mm -hmm. um, and then the right side dentary. The lower jaw. Yeah, the lower jaw, the part with the teeth in it. Mm -hmm. And that was the most awesome experience I thought I could ever have. Seriously, it's it's like become my pet. <laughs> you Elvira. know, the pet that doesn't yeah, I do. I call her Elvira and you know, I pat her on the nose when I leave at night and, you know, I miss her when I'm gone and it's like, oh my God, who's, it's, it's, I, nobody better touch her. I'm just I'm very protective. Um, but yeah, I've become quite intimate with Elvira. I mean, it can get pretty dusty in the lab. And Mike explained to us about the exhaust fan, which is on all the time to help with the dust and the particles from all the tools being used. Are you listening to something or are you just blocking out the noise? I can't listen to books or podcasts. No offense oh. about this, but I can't listen. I can't listen to anything that I need to concentrate on because I find myself concentrating so hard um, on what I'm doing. Right. You know, because there's it, it, as much as you're removing a lot of rock. There's a lot of decisions that are made the whole time, but I'm always listening to the music. I was gonna say, what's on your playlist? It's <laughs> Old music. Old music. <laughs> All right. Well, no, it depends. Sometimes I listen to opera. Okay. Yeah. Sometimes I listen to things like Bonnie Raitt and okay. you know, blues. Yeah. Um, sometimes when I'm really amped up, I get a little bit more rock and rolly. So. <laughs> <laughs> and then sometimes I listen to John Denver. I don't know why I do. That's great. I know. All of Prim's work has been viewable to the public as part of the new Burke Museum's design. All of the research and collection labs have clear glass windows, so the activity of scientists happening behind the scenes is out in the open for everyone to see. And I heard there are several people who regularly visit the museum to check in on the skull and to check on Prim. I'm Shira Park. I'm seven years old. My name is Meredith Park. I'm five. And oh my god. They gosh. know everything about dinosaurs. So they are the Prim fan club. They are the Prim fan club. Okay. Absolutely. And their mother is wonderful. She so brings them there club. every day. You know, it is pretty much. <laughs> well, they dress in all dinosaur and What does that oh, mean? That's adorable. They, every, their little rain boots have dinosaurs on them. Their barrettes and their hair have dinosaurs. Megalodons. And hammerhead sharks. Turned on. They have little dinosaur t-shirts. Their leggings are dinosaurs. <laughs> Triceratops. Dinosaurs. And a raptor tushy. One of the little girls actually did a, a first grade project where they mm. had to pick a word and then they had to um, define the word okay. um, or describe it in front of the class. And she went as a preparator. <gasps> and she had 
Um, she had all the little tools out. They oh actually carry a backpack with them everywhere they go in case they have to dig a fossil up. That's so very prepared. In their backpack, they have sunscreen and they have a hat and they have, I've given <laughs> them a few little tools. My books, shovel, a picture wow. of a tooth. This is a brush, chisels, a hammer with a saw on the end, which does this makes a saw in the ground. And um, they have some glue, and they are totally prepared. So she did this thing for her first grade class as a preparator. You and know, they helped with the preparation? Yeah, what they've they helped. They've, I've given them brushes, so they've done some brushing oh and a little bit of digging. You know, they've been there from the beginning. That is really, amazing. Yeah, they're pretty cute. Pretty cute. It felt like being a real paleontologist. And it was kind of smooth around the edges, and it had the serration around both sides. I talk with Prim and Michael a lot. We usually talk about the new bones that have been found um, and how everything's connected in the skull. Prim told me the story that one tooth was starting to break, and it broke, and it was a lucky fall because it fell right into her hands. Dinosaurs and paleontology more broadly is... uh absolutely a gateway drug to all the other sciences. It is, so totally. any little kid, especially any little girl who's into dinosaurs, totally. get That's them true. another dinosaur toy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, get them another dinosaur Get them book. a backpack with sunscreen <laughs> and a little shovel yeah. and glue. Little tools. That's right. Little tools. That's right. Get them going. I mean, get them another book. Let them read another book. Introduce them to as many fossils as you know, they can see and let them see them, touch them, You know, be part of it. What? Yeah. We actually found G-bones in our backyard's gravel pit. Yes! We found an ammonite, a tooth, an orthoceros shell. What was really cool is the orthoceros shell was embedded in marble. And we think that maybe um, in prehistoric times our home might have been the ocean, because why would I find an ammonite there? I still not find any fossils, though. The touching part of it was what was so cool. And being able right. to touch the serrations of the teeth, mm-hmm. you know, it became real to them. This was just, it was real. And um, that, I love experiencing that myself, but to get the kids to experience it was really mind-blowing. It was really great. I really enjoyed that part. Sounds like you've been a fantastic ambassador. <laughs> oh, I hope for so. For this guy, for this uh, girl, so. for whatever it is, this T-Rex. <laughs> Elvira, let's just call Elvira. it Elvira. <laughs> The Tufts Love Rex. The Tufts Love Rex. Okay. When we asked Michael what he thought the best feature of the Tufts Love T-Rex was, he answered with what he thinks is its best angle. I really like getting right in front of the snout Mm. and looking kind of along the ridge of the nose, like all the way up the top of the skull. Uh Because from that spot, there's all of this really gnarly, cool texture all over the, the front end of the skull. You can stare right at... The orbits, the eye you sockets. Right in the eyes. You really can get this sense of staring down that animal. Right. Um, and there's some something kind of really visceral about oh, that. yeah. You know, because it's so huge. Imagine the little exhale. Imagine yeah, the... Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that, that's, that's probably my favorite viewpoint. Uh, as far as my favorite thing about the skull in general, it, I would just say the level of preservation. Uh, it's, it really is exquisite. Every time you get further into the thing, you find things that you know anatomically are there, but you almost just can't believe that they're there because they're so well preserved. There's a bone in the ear. Oh, wow. Like, like mm-hmm. you know, you have three little bones inside your ear that transmit sound. Okay, mm-hmm. well, if, if you're a reptile or a bird, uh, you have one of those because the other two are part of your jaw instead. Mm-hmm. That little bone, for us, it's the stapes. It's the smallest bone in your whole body. That is also true in dinosaurs. Um, but if you're a bird or a reptile, we call it a columella. It's a skinny little stick of bone that's like a couple millimeters wide. And in a T-Rex, it's like maybe eight inches long. Um, but just the fact that those are even there at all is remarkable. So my mind has created an image of what the T-Rex skull would look like, but I'm ready to see in real life for myself. So far we know the Tufts Love T-Rex is 66.3 million years old, living at the end of the Cretaceous period. The skull seems to be average size for an adult T-Rex, about 4 feet long by 3 feet wide. And that might not sound that big, 
But the body of an adult T-Rex was as long as a city bus and stood from 15 to maybe even 20 feet tall if it reared up. And basing on the size of the skull, they've estimated the tough slug Rex was around 19 or 20 years old when it died. And this is well within adult body size. The world has been waiting to see the unveiling of the tough slug T-Rex for several years. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, all eyes will be on the big prize. Brandon, um, I think the majority of people and scientists and non-scientists alike accept that the T-Rex is the most popular dinosaur fossil. What do you think? Oh, absolutely. I can speak to it as a paleontologist, though my specialty doesn't focus on tyrannosaurs. So to get that assumption stamped and approved, we talked with one of the leading scientists studying tyrannosaurs, Dr. Thomas Carr. He's an associate professor of biology at Carthage College and director of the Carthage Institute of Paleontology. I'm so curious, could you define your role as a scientist? I think my main role is to lift the lid on how nature truly operates. And through application of the scientific method and the particular corner that I've chosen of nature is the evolution of tyrannosaurs. And they grabbed me when I was, figuratively speaking, when I was very (laughs) young. And I find them to be very fascinating creatures with a good sample size. And so I've decided quite a while ago to do a deep dive into figuring out how they grew up and how their growth can unlock the secrets of how they evolved. And I haven't looked back since. So that's my primary role is to contribute to the general body of knowledge that tries to work out how evolution actually happened using tyrannosaurs as a model. Mm-hmm. And well, and, and that's what brought you to Seattle to see the Tufts Love Rex. You're here to get data from this specimen to add it so you can understand the growth of that species of animal. Indeed. And the Tufts Love Rex is an absolutely gorgeous specimen, basically a complete skull, partial postcranial skeleton. And, you know, it's going to be a spectacular specimen uh, once it's on display in the final version of the gallery. So it's kind of nice having a sneak peek. And I must say that when I learned about it, I was so happy to learn that it was found on BLM land and that a real museum was collecting it. Mm -hmm. I was Mm -hmm. dreading that this would be yet another Rex uh, that's being carted off by a, a commercial company or a museum that's bought it out of the ground. So it was good news all around. I knew that the specimen was safe and that it would be accessible for science and public education. I guess just for starters, the Tuslov Rex is a beautifully preserved specimen. Like Very few T-Rexes in real museum collections uh, even come close. Uh, most of it's largely articulated. The jaws are there, and the, but they're separate, which is you know, very good. Um, My first impression of the Tufts Love Rex was that it was uh, a young animal. Mm. So just in broad strokes, it's a relatively young animal, probably in its reproductive prime. And uh, there's numerous sort of subtle features that give away its youth. I don't want to go into, you know, T-Rex hyperspace on (laughs) you, but those features are there. So can you just give us an idea of, you know, you come to a museum, you look at an individual specimen, what kind of data is it that you're collecting and how is that informing what you're trying to do? You're trying to understand how an animal goes from an egg to a big bad T-Rex and this is helping you do that. And then, of course, I'm assuming there's the other side, which is the family tree of tyrannosaurs. Well, I guess I'll have to confess that I'm obsessed with tyrannosaurs (laughs) and I want to know everything about each individual specimen. Mm. And so I have a, a master set of data that includes measurements and qualitative features. So, you know, I'll measure, say, the femur length, the skull length. I might want proportion, so I'll take the snout depth to get, you know, a ratio of the uh, height of the skull. I also count things, so I count the number of teeth And I'll look at features like, say, the texture of the face, and that changes with growth. And I gather observations from the entire skeleton. 
And in total, my master set of data includes around 11,000 data points for a single skull and skeleton. And basically, fossils are uh, sets of information, if you want to just get right down to it. And they are individual sets of information that are unique to themselves, but also fit into a larger context of, say, growth and evolution and history of life on this planet in the context of larger environmental changes, extinctions, and that sort of thing. So their value, their currency, is information content. And they mean nothing without that. I would say they have information content and they have a little bit of a, a wonderment content that's very hard to replicate with other things. I agree. That's, that's absolutely right. And because this T-Rex specimen is so well-preserved, other scientists like Dr. Carr are able to use it to help fill in gaps in our knowledge of tyrannosaurs and other dinosaurs. The Burke Museum has received so many requests from researchers to study the Tufts Love Rex, they think it could possibly become one of the most studied Tyrannosaurus Rex fossils in the world. And Brandon, I already know that you're a paleontologist, but if you were a dentist, would you be more excited to study <laughs> to all those teeth? I don't think so, because if you're a dentist, you're making your money helping people maintain their teeth. And an animal like T-Rex is just throwing those teeth away. They're falling out of the mouth all the time. If you're a smart dentist, you work on rich mammals. Mm, rich mammals, gotcha. <laughs> the one that walks on two feet. Yes. Kangaroos, us, whoever. So we wanted to ask you sort of your take on this idea of why do dinosaurs matter? What can the public get from dinosaurs? I think everybody knows them, but what are they maybe not seeing that you can see? I think the public has to recognize that we all share a common heritage on this planet. And to truly know the history of the planet, we have to protect and conserve the vestiges of the past, things like fossils, you know, archaeological remains, the whole gamut of the past. Origins are everything. And even though the day-to-day -day lives of a dinosaur 68 million years ago has no direct bearing on our day-to-day -day life right now, there's still a tremendous amount to learn in terms of evolutionary biology. So people... I think, have to develop that understanding and appreciation. I think, by and large, people do. But it's the information that fossils contain that are important. At the end of the day, the past has no other voice but the bones. And there's simply no other way of recovering the past without having the actual bodies in hand. Without that, we have nothing. And then that scientific knowledge informs all the generations of scientists to come for as long as civilization lasts. And no one has any idea how long that will be. But I think there's a, there's a certain amount of urgency at play here. And so in the meantime, isn't it worth it to make sure that all of our information is secure? And the only thing available to secure that information of the deep past of evolution and history of life on this planet are the institutions of museums and the academic academy that props those up. It's a necessary enterprise for the benefit of all, even though it might not translate into some immediate reward. But what we do get, the reward is a deep understanding of nature in the way that it truly is. We're not making anything up as long as we have the fossils. We're constantly refining our understanding of, of things at every scale, from the subatomic to the you know, galactic scale and beyond. So paleontology is just a microcosm of science writ large. We don't know everything yet. And as a matter of fact, we hardly know anything about anything in terms of dinosaur biology and evolution. We only have the bare outlines that we're filling in. Fossil record's really crappy. It, it really is. We don't have is. much of it. It really is. We always tell people, it's amazing we know what we know. Everything. You have to imagine, like, think about everything that's living and breathing and evolving and swimming and growing right now on the surface of the planet. And then if I talk to you 67 million years ago or 220 million years ago, we probably know a little bit about two different places on the surface of the Earth, and that's it. And there's mm -hmm. no reason to suspect in any real meaningful way that that past world would be less diverse or less nuanced. <laughs> Indeed. So we're working with a very incomplete set of data that is being incrementally 
and painstakingly reassembled. Uh, Thomas, do you think that is a method to kind of engage younger generations to want to pursue paleontology? I'm thinking exactly when we're gone, who's going to pick up the slack? Do we do we want、um, more to be invested in this long-term discovery? Well, I think just the the message of incompleteness really means there's plenty of opportunity for everyone who's interested and who has the ability to. You know, carry this the torch of science in whatever capacity. You know, it could be a little kid who's inspired to do a PhD in some branch of science, whether it be evolutionary biology or physics or whatever chemistry. It could be, you know, maybe someone who who develops software or a pipe fitter who might be inspired to, you know, come out and dig dinosaurs and actually collect fossils and, in a very real and material way, contribute to. You know the great library of fossils, the great library of evolution that's slowly building up in museum collections. So, really, the incompleteness in paleontology,、uh, field biology, or just about every branch of science is an open invitation to the public at large to be citizen scientists. So, I think incompleteness means opportunity, and I think that it will always be that way. Our knowledge will always be be incomplete because the scale of the task is so monumentally vast. We're trying to understand a universe, and this is just one planet with a fairly thin crust. And there's a hell of a lot there to understand. It's almost overwhelming at times, but people can join in. That's the beauty of it, and really contribute by joining academic expeditions. Where the participants know that those fossils will make their way into a real museum collection for the benefit of all humankind, whether it's a scientific paper here or a museum gallery there, it doesn't matter. Just as long as the contributions made and the fossil finds a safe home. So, Brandon, I'm feeling so empowered after listening to Dr. Carr and with your and his suggestions. I definitely feel like I have to go out, pick up some articles and journals to continue educating myself on the T. Rex. Yeah, I know. Tell me about it. There's always more to learn, and I think one of the best things about paleontology is that we're learning new information constantly. So you let me know, okay, if you want to know something about early dinosaurs or mass extinction events, because that's what all my papers are about. More so, I look forward to reading them and sharing these articles potentially with my students. In thinking about my students, I want to hear more from the people we've talked about with their thoughts on their future of paleontology and how we as teachers and parents can get kids involved. Well, let's ask one of my former teachers his thoughts on the topic. He's a former committee member of mine, Dr. Greg Wilson. And、would you say it's fair that,、um, let's say, a younger version of myself or Brandon, we're looking at a dinosaur book and just kind of thinking, well, everything we know about dinosaurs must be here、um, in this book itself. But you guys bringing in this T. Rex skull, a newly discovered, has opened up new eyes, new minds to、um, paleontology being as relevant as ever in the 21st century. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think there paleontology being a really An old science and one that, you know, we're talking about millions of years ago. People think we have figured everything out, and even in a place like the Hell Creek area, where、uh, the first T. Rex specimen was discovered in 1902, so more than 100 years ago, we are still going into those hills, those same hills that they were trampsing about in in 1902, and finding new things. You know, each new thing has the possibility of you know changing the way that we see. This major episode in Earth history. This is a very dynamic, living science that is going to be important in the way that we look at the the world presently and in, into the future by looking at these experiments in the past. So I think paleontologists have a very valuable sense they bring to conversations about most topics because there's a sense of time and scale that most people just aren't operating on. They're operating on maybe a decade tops when they look backwards and forwards in time, usually less. So are there things that you think Could benefit society that the perspective of a paleontologist could help with, sort of bigger picture. <laughs> oh gosh, this is a tough question. It is, you know, a mass extinction event like that doesn't happen every day. You know, <laughs> thank <laughs> thankfully,、God. yes, thankfully. And because of that, you can get some perspective on these rare that rare events do happen. Yeah, and they can have disproportionate effect on the course of. Earth history, absolutely. You look around today, and you can look forward and backward 
decades and you can see what's happened within our lifetime or within human civilization lifetime. And that doesn't capture the realm of possibility. Right. And so I think paleontology offers that perspective. And I think just broadening our horizons on uh, what the world was like is, is important. It encapsulates everything exciting about the scientific process. We learned a lot about this specific Trinosaurus rex, the tough love T-Rex, from the variety of teams who discovered it and have taken it to prepare and are currently researching it. And I think I can speak for everyone by saying that we are very lucky to have such a rare specimen available to see, touch, and study. Christy, earlier we were talking about how scientists have used the Tufts Love Rex to fill in gaps in previous Tyrannosaur research. Remarkably, they can use it to understand more about how T-Rex grew and to what size, whether they were active predators or scavengers, and tell us more about what life on Earth was like back when it was alive. And like Dr. Carr said, it can also help us learn and understand what life on Earth will be like in the future. To learn more about the ongoing adventures of people like those that found the Tufts Love T-Rex, check out the Dig Field School website, sign up for their newsletter, and follow their Instagram. Or better yet, like I did, sign up for one of the trips and be a part of a working dig. And be sure to visit the Burke Museum in Seattle, Washington to see up close and personal what their researchers are uncovering every day. Visit burkemuseum.org and digfieldschool.org to see photos and read up-to-date news on all things paleontology. A big thank you to Jason Love and Luke Tufts for their discovery and their hard work. To the Bureau of Land Management for giving us the permits to collect this amazing T-Rex fossil. And to the ranchers of northeastern Montana. Without all of these people, the great and important work, discovery, and science we and others are doing would not be possible. Thank you for listening, and thank you to our guests. Greg Wilson, Dave DeMar, Thomas Carr, Michael Holland, Gene Primazich, and Shira and Meredith Park. We've included links to stories, images, and resources, so definitely check those out. We're your hosts, Christy Marr and Brandon Peacock. You've been listening to To Hell Creek and Back, the story of the Tufts Love T-Rex. <laughs>